Welcome to episode 33 of the Talentopoly podcast. We'll be talking about managing yourself as a freelancer. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and as always, I'm joined by Brandon Corbin. Hi! <laughs> Gets better every time. Oh, fuck. We have a guest tonight. Ed Rudd is joining us on the podcast. How's it going, Ed? Oh, it's going chaotic as always. So you were you're in the middle of or finishing up a server migration? In the middle of. Amazing. And you're taking time out of that to talk on your iPad over Skype to us, right? Yes. I love it. Well, thanks for taking the time. Before we get into our topic, let's quickly touch on what we're drinking tonight. And we'll start, as always, with you, Brandon. So uh, I'm actually, I'm having, it's called the Dreaming Tree, and it's a Cabernet um, uh, from North Carolina, and but it's a Dave Matthews. It's His, a Dave Matthews beer. Dave Matthews a wine. winery? I don't know. Was, I don't know. I don't know. involved somehow? I, you, know, you know why I bought it, though? Because I walked in, and I thought it was the Giving Tree, and it has that same kind of ah. style of illustration, and so it kind of it kind of is misleading, and I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, I'm buying it if it's the Giving Tree, <laughs> right? Like, it, it then gave apples and, and itself, and it was, you know, it was uh, beautiful. Uh, but no, then the guy's like, are you going to the concert? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's the Dave Matthews concert. I'm like, no. But yeah, so anyway, it's a, it's a, it's, it's not very good. It's not. So you wouldn't get it again? No, no, I won't buy it again. You have to look for other children's books, inspired wines. <laughs> exactly. But I am going to make a wine called The Giving Tree. <laughs> I'm having some uh, twisted tea during this podcast. It's kind of my mainstay. I know I've had that a bunch on the podcast, but I'm a sucker for crappy tea-flavored beer. What can I say? No, it's kind of like my uh, cellar number eight that I drink all the time. That was yeah. like... You know, or the yeah, so the no, unofficial non-sponsor of the podcast. Yeah, exactly. The people who still haven't yet to send me—I can't believe. It. I'm sure they've. I'm sure they've listened to the oh, show. No doubt. <laughs> but where the fuck's my wine? <laughs> All right, let's jump into our topic. So, Ed, you are. Wait, wait. Is Ed not drinking any milk? Oh, sorry, Ed. I what? am actually not currently drinking anything other than the sweat dripping off my face because okay. this server room is hot. Nice. See, I kind of assumed that, but I, we should, I should have asked. So now we know Ed is drinking nothing, which uh, is later a first, I'll probably actually. i some water because I'm excessively thirsty. But <laughs> This is a Talonopoly podcast first. All right. So, Ed, you recently... Is it true to say that you recently became a freelancer, or, or have you thought of yourself as a freelancer for quite a while now? I, I've technically been doing it on the side for quite a while. I mean, my business, outoforder.cc, I've been doing since probably 2003, 2004, doing side programming jobs for people all over the world. And just the past year have I been doing it basically as my only job. Gotcha. So we're going to talk a little bit here about some of the difficulties of being a freelancer and uh, and get into a little bit of how you manage your time, but first let's talk about how you find work. How does how does work? How do clients come to you? My current way is basically through word of mouth. That's how basically I've gotten them all past you know several years. Is I I just end up doing open source work. People find out, hey, I like that, and they tell other people, and so people just contact me randomly saying, hey, can you write this for me? It's like sure. And then, you know, through the random work I did back in 2007 for porting uh, Penumbra Overture to Mac and Linux, 
that has sort of evolved into being well known in the game porting community. And so now I'm doing a whole heck of a lot of game ports for the Humble Indie Bundle. So just to, to expand on that for a minute, what exactly are you what are you doing for game ports? Can like give me give me more detail about that. Well, I, I the Humble Mini Bundle is basically a you know name your own price game sale. They run every month or so now, <clears throat> so you get to pick however much or however little you want to buy for these five or six games in the bundle. And the one requirement of being part of the bundle to have your game featured in it is your game must run on Windows, Mac OS X, and Linux. So the first bundle, all the games already were on those platforms, no problem. The average bundle since then, for the most part, they've needed to have someone port the games over there. Either Ryan Gordon or now me doing a lot of them as well. So basically I just sort of get, you know, I get from the headhunter that works at the Humble Bundle. He goes through and connects them over to me and says, hey, I'd like you to check this game out. And so like every, seems like every week I've got another game to check out. So I download this, sign the NDAs, download the source, spend about three or four hours looking at that and saying, it's going to take me about this much to do it. And then wait until it comes up into the queue and I start working on them. Nice. Which lately my queue has been so backlogged. I've got about 15 games in my queue. I have six games I still have to yet to review the source code of. And so we've started actually finding other people to port them as well. And so some of the things that were on my plate are being delegated off because I just don't have time. It it seems like this last humble bundle humble bumble um got a shitload of media attention and and made a ton of money, like yes, more they, like 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 how much did they make the, this last they, round? Make? They hit just over five million dollars, and that was in what a couple weeks? Two two weeks. They actually hit two million dollars just past the first day, like the first day in fifteen minutes. Yeah. Now, are you, are, do, you get a, do you get a percentage of that? I only got a percentage of the first bundle because right. the first bundle, Penumbra Overture was part of it. And because of the agreement I had with Frictional Games, I got a small percentage of the Mac and Linux ports. So I got a percentage of the first bundle, which hit a million and a quarter. But it was a small percentage, but it was still nice. This ever one since then, I'm basically, you know, the games that I have put in there, which is basically almost a dozen games in the past year that I've ported, I basically get a fixed fee for the port. I think so. you need to renegotiate that shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody's looking at that one. It's like, man, I wish I had a percentage of that one. That'd be nice. But eh, it was still fun working on the games. <clears throat> this specific one, well, actually, this game had two games that I actually had ports on, technically. One of them I actually did the you know four frictional games was Amnesia, Amnesia the Dark Descent, which I actually did two years ago for them doing the Mac and Linux ports. So there was really nothing I had to do for that other than just make you know serial free builds and send them over to the Humble Bundle. The new game that I did this time around was Bastion by Supergiant Games and. That one was an interesting game port because it was written in XNA, so I had to deal with mono and all that fun stuff on Linux, which was an adventure. And, of course, the mono game group developers are drooling over all the contributions that I had submitted to them over fixes and patches to the Linux port of the mono game. Very nice. So it sounds like things are going really well for your freelance business now, right? Yes. You got more work than you could possibly do. And you don't need to go out and market to find clients. In fact, if clients started knocking on your door right now, you'd probably have to turn them away, right? 
I actually have had to do that, yes. But let's back up a little bit. So you say that you've never really marketed, you're actively marketed your services, right? You, you've relied on referrals. Yep. So what was, like, what was that like? Take me back to the early days. How do you get started doing that? How, what would you recommend to somebody who wants to start on the side getting a few clients? How do you find those initial clients that then can refer you and, and start building that network of traffic coming to you? I mean, my initial entry into the consulting and contract work, freelance stuff, was through open source. So basically, in 2003 or so, I had no job at the time because I was taking a break from college and trying to find my brain again. And so I was just looking around for jobs and just trying to figure it out. And it was actually an annoying guy who was trying to sell me, you know, certificates and documentation for getting, you know, certs that told me that if, well, if you want to be a programmer, then all you need to do is just be a programmer. And so at that point I said, okay. So I started redesigning my website, posting all the open source stuff that I'd worked on up there and just started just living it there. And then bumped into a guy who worked on the Apache web server product and started just working with him doing modules for Apache. And then okay. through that, and everybody on the IRC channel, they said, hey, if you need some work done, go over and talk to him. And so they were basically the community seeing, you know, the work that I was doing open source-wise was referring other people who were wanting, you know, contract work and sending them over to me. So I really, I did nothing. It was, everybody, it was the community who helped me out and did it. But you were doing quality work that people could see via these open right. source contributions, right? Yes, and so you can see, it's like, well, I basically my website hosts several of those Apache modules and other PHP projects and everything else. So if someone wants to know what quality work I do, all they got to do is just look at my website. It's a living resume of the work I do. Excellent. And since the way open source works, it's just out in the open. And it seems like GitHub is becoming more of that type of place now where you may not even need to expose it on your own website. You could just point people to your GitHub profile. Exactly. And with all the recent additions they've made to make it easier to mock up simple websites for your projects even, yeah, it does make it easier. And it's a more refined source forge is the way I see GitHub. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It seems to have a, a lot better quality stuff there and all the cruft seems to be weeded out pretty easily. So, Brandon, you freelanced for quite a while, right? Yeah. I'd say, I mean, I, I started freelancing at 18 uh, I actually held my first logo I did when I was 13 for Rax International Cleaning, and those and paid me 50 bucks, and they used it for like nine years. Amazing. Um, but most of the most of the stuff that I've ever done was design originally designed before really the web kind of took off, um, and then just website design, and then jobs for development. So I usually don't do custom like custom code work for people, um, but design work and build outs and you know basically front end stuff, setting up you know WordPress whatnot. I would do that. But yeah, so I've 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 had a. a tawdry affair with it and now i don't do it um i just kind of refuse but i have a good network of people that can do stuff and i have people still ask so i send them to them so how did you get work in those early days how, how did clients right. find you well so the my my big my best claim to fame well hell i spammed people 
I um uh, so the my first one was Biohazard, right, which is a hardcore band from Brooklyn, New York, and I was a huge fan of theirs. And so I just dug around until I found any possible emails that I could of these guys and just kept emailing them, just saying, "Hey, let me do work for you. Let me do work for you. Let me do work for. I'll do shit for free." Um, and uh, finally, they're like, "Well, why don't you try this one piece?" It was a T-shirt, and so I did the T-shirt, and then boom, next thing you know, I'm doing a ton of work for them. Um, and then that always, you know, that leads to other bands that I had the opportunity of working with. So that was kind of cool. And, you know, I'm 18, 19, 20, and I get to go and I get to hang out with these guys. And, you know, that was fun. That was worth it. That's killer. Um, I, I was on stage with Pantera, Sepultura, and Biohazard. And that was like, you know, a metal from the 90s wet dream right there. <laughs> you must have been <laughs> in heaven. Oh, like, it was great. Holy shit, it, what is happening? Yeah, it was awesome. And like hanging out with them and shit. And and, and uh, Billy uh, Billy Grazia Day, who's the one of the guys in Biohazard, kissed my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. And we're out in Detroit and he kissed my wife. Not like in an overtly sexual way, just enough to make me uncomfortable. But still, I'm <laughs> starstruck, right? I'm like, hey, I kissed my Billy Grazia Day. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, so did, anyway, <laughs> fuck talk about a sidetrack. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, so I would go out and I would just spam people. I would spam AOL, go through and just say, hey, this is what I do. And and it seemed to work. And then then it wait, does wait, turn into AOL mouth. get back to you and have you do oh, work. Yeah. And not AOL, like people on AOL. This is like before. Oh, okay. I mean, I would I would write scripts to go through and just collect email addresses of everybody in this type of business chat room. And oh, okay. email so them and say chat rooms. Awesome. You're yeah. dating yourself right here. So oh, totally, dude. I mean, but I had to, right? I had a baby and I needed to figure out ways of making money because I wasn't getting paid shit at work. Well, you mentioned that doing the work for Bioshock quickly led to you doing work for other bands in that in you know, in that field. Yep. How did that happen? What's the connection there? Was Bioshock going around telling well, people? Well, it's, it's, it's Biohazard, oh, just sorry, so we're Biohazard. fucking clear. Um, no, you, you, so what happened is I got to do um, an album uh, that they were working on with Roadrunner Records. And so then I get in touch with, Road Rec- you know, with Roadrunner and their contacts, and, and I just treat them like fucking gold, right? I'm slobbering all over them. And then they're like, well, hey, you know, we liked working with this guy. So why don't we use them for this and this and this and this? So it, it really is, you know, once you get into somebody that as long as they have friends and they have connections, at least that's been my thing is then it just kind of gets passed down. Or we did another project for um, this salon and this was recently. And I said, OK, I'm not going to do it, but here's Patrick Dow. I'll handle it. I'll handle the whole project and make sure everything gets done and all of that. But he's going to do all the work. Um, you know, then that came back and that, they were happy with that. So then he was talking to somebody else and we get another call. You know, so it really is just, you know, just surprise the hell out of them, be over loving with them. And uh, a lot of times they will recommend you. But you got to get that first one. And that first one, you got to be a whore and do whatever you can to get it. Right. No, that's great advice. Yeah, basically, you got to do your job well, you know, and make the customer a little happy because it's like i'm like you know if you're really terrible at doing something then you're probably not going to get more work at it right yeah. and so, I'll, yeah. I'll push that and say not even make them a little happy i mean make them orgasmic right just make them where they're like holy i mean this was it, i i'll take these uh, when i was doing it i had a whole um project management uh, suite set up so you know i'm doing a small tiny project for designing a business card and i send them this you know this place and they can have this whole interactive uh it was kind of like uh, base camp right um that they could go in and that just blew them away 
Like they just loved it. They just love it. Or if you, they were just like they're so engaging because a lot of times they work with people and it's just like I don't hear anything, you know. So surprise them on the high side, and and you can even produce shittier work as long as you like treat them personally like they're gods. Right. So uh, I would think even in the early days when maybe you only have a client or two, but definitely as you get a lot of work coming in, managing your time gets very critical, right? Yes. <laughs> How? What are your tips and tricks for managing time? How do you manage yourself as a freelancer? You you are your own boss. How do you set your hours? How do you stick to getting things done? Very carefully, and longing for a big mute button. <laughs> <clears throat> that that's what's been lately. It's been lately. It's like everybody keeps bugging and calling, and it's like oh, I got to remember. Oh, actually, no, it's not. I need to remember. I need to forget to unmute my computer when I start working in the morning, because then I won't hear the instant messenger go off or anybody calling me on Skype or anything else. So I don't hear it. Therefore, I just work away and I'm oblivious to anybody trying to contact me. Do you have set times of the day that you'll check all of your communication channels? Usually when I get up in the morning, I'll check through all my emails and everything else that's sitting in the queue. And then once in the afternoon, that's what I try to stick with. And of course, you know, you have growls sitting there running popping up every so often and if there's something important i'll try to hit it then and try to not jump in every other thing that's not important but yeah that's something that's i'm still in the middle of trying to work out a little better as i'm going through trying to figure out how to get the best time management in and what types of tools do you use to to try to handle time management or tracking tasks i i use two tools for mainly for doing all of that right now is I use uh, OmniFocus from the Omni Group, which is a basically a task management program built around the getting things done process, which that runs on my Mac and my iPhone and my iPad and synchronizes between all of them. So all my tasks are everywhere. And I use that not just for work. I use that for taking out the trash, washing the dishes, vacuuming the house, paying bills. Everything goes in that so I remember to do everything. And that's pretty much my go-to thing for managing what needs to done, be done and making sure I do it and don't forget things. Because when you nice. got this much stuff going on, it, things just tend to pop out the other side. So that's why I'm always like, you have to email me. You cannot just tell me verbally because I will forget. You have to email me. Otherwise, it, it did not happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then for tracking how much time I'm spending on stuff, I'm using a product called Billings from Market Circle. Which I use that because it has you know nice timers and builds up pretty decent looking, um, you know invoices and everything else and manages how much time I work on projects. So I just go through and start the timer and work on a project. If I switch projects, I can stop one timer, start a different one. If I walk away from the desk to, to go find something to eat, use the bathroom, etc., it detects that hey I've been away and tells me hey you've been away for an hour. Would you like me to remove this time and stop the timer? It's like yes because I wasn't actually working then. Or if I'm on a phone call, well I'm technically still working on that company's time with the call with them, but I'm not active on the computer. So I'll say yes that time was actually valid. So keep it in there. So that works to for to help me twofold. One to know how much I need to bill clients and how much time I actually spend on things so I can better estimate projects because some projects are hourly based that I do and other ones are fixed. Like most of these game ports are fixed costs. So therefore I have to know about how long it's really going to take me so I can estimate within a 
you know, few hours of how much it's going to cost. Oh, that's great. So and, you will actually go back and look at past completed projects to get an idea of how long this current one might take you. Exactly. I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on this, Brandon. We've gotten in, into this topic a little bit in past podcasts. We've talked about the Corbinizer quite a few times, which is yeah. your simple, downloadable, you print it out in seven days thing on a piece of paper, and you can fill out a very lightweight to-do list on that. But in general, you're not big on to-do lists, right? No, you know, I um, I have kind of a Zen approach uh, to the, to my professional career, and and basically the, all I do is I set I don't do hourly. Uh, if I would ever do it again, and I stop doing hourly, where I then do project based because that forces me to uh, it just forces me to do a whole lot of stuff, and and I ended up finding that I could make more money doing it that way. Um, but as far as time management goes, I just like to have tell me when it needs to be done. And I've got I'm old enough now that I've seen that my kind of like when you wake up, right? Sometimes if you just start getting into a routine, your body will wake your ass up at 630 regardless. Um, and I've noticed that I just kind of do that. And so I just go with it. I just go with the flow. I know that on this date, I have to have it done. And then you know, I'll be sitting there working on something like, oh, shit, I got to work on this. And then I start working on it. And I get the shit done and and I'm good. And it's it has really not failed me. Um, there hasn't been a time that I was like, oh, and I completely forgot a project. I mean, that just never happens with what I do. So it, it works with me, but it's taken me again, you know, I'm 36 now. So it's taken me, you know, quite a few uh, years to get that down. Uh, but no, I, I like much more of a high level and then just try not to forget everything that needs to get done. <laughs> what And yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about the kind of the tasks within the high level piece, you know, that you may have discussed with a client, some of the more specific type pieces of that how do you remember that are you just keeping that in your head yeah um really what i do is when because i'm so visual that everything that i do when i'm talking to customers is i'm kind of i'm i'm thinking through the experience of it okay. right so i'm thinking through how is the user going to go through this very specific piece and so then that leads me down the paths of okay i know i have to develop this i have to build this i have to build that um so most of the time then i when i have to go back through and think about everything we talked about i just go back and i think of the picture and that's how i used to do stuff in school right i wouldn't sit there and and try to remember uh, equations, I would turn them into a picture, I would remember the picture, and then I could reapply it. So that's just how my brain works. Um, and, and and I'm happy for that, too, because I take shitty notes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so most of the time, and, and sometimes stuff slips through. And, and, and so I'm okay with that, because if they don't bring it back up, then it really wasn't important to them anyway. Um, and if they do bring it back up, then it was important to them. And I need to now think about it in those terms. And I remembered I'd already planned it. So it fits right here. I just forgot where, you know, to put it there. So that's that's how I handle it. Makes sense. Yeah. Does it? Does it? Photographic memory. <laughs> yeah, I think probably if you were a programmer, you you would need more of a system to put very specific tasks somewhere. You know, well, no, you, we're talking about Vue U too, right? So all of the stuff, everything that I've built with for Vue U was done this way too. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's it, like I, I, I would never break down that, okay, I'm going to build, you know, this, 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 and this um, in this order. That's just not how I work. But, yeah, so from a programming standpoint, that's how I do it. But, like, let's say there's a feature that, like a form or something, and, you know, we've, we've spent some time talking. I'm the client, and we're spending some time talking about exactly which fields that printable form should have on it, that report or whatever. You're actually building that picture with that much resolution in your mind and you can remember those fields that need to be put in there? 
a lot of them. Um, or and you're most just of, waiting for me to maybe you've missed one and then I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, I, oh, a lot of times okay, and I'll add that, it back yeah, in. That does happen. That okay. totally happens. Um, but a lot of times, like I don't, I don't get down to that level where I'm building out a whole CMS for somebody and we have to have 50 fields. Right? We're talking they have this high-level problem that they're trying to solve. Like we have a salon and we want to have a salon finder, right? Well, they don't really know the fields that they want, okay. right? Most of, the, most of the companies I'm dealing with, they don't have like an IT guy who has this all figured out. They have this high-level problem and they need someone to come in and make those decisions for them. And so that's where I've always felt more comfortable. Like, you know, if they have like, these are just the exact rules that we need to have built. I'm like, yeah, fucking go find somebody else then. Um, because that's not I, th that's where I will fail as a developer. So maybe that's an important piece of this whole thing is understanding where your strengths are and going after the projects that are worth you know are good for your strengths. I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I can understand it because I depending on what kind of project, I will either you know take liberal notes and the tasks and everything else, or I will do exactly what you do, Brandon. Where I'll just it's in my head. I know what it is. I've got this knowing photographic memory, so I picture it. Like the, for the humble bundle, the pre-bundle testing of games has been a rather interesting problem that they've had right now because they don't have a good way of tracking all the people, all the people that are testing it, and all the issues they come up when they're testing these new ports that are you know fresh out the door a week before the bundle starts. So I'm like, currently they're using a Google Doc for that purpose which I'm like cringing at because it's a horrible way to track everything when you have this Google Doc that's like 20 pages long with 10 games worth of bug reports in it. So I'm like, I need to create a bug system for them because they don't like anything else that's out there. So I went through and just, just designed in my head, this is what I need to do and how it's going to work. And so I basically over the course of a couple months spent you know a couple hours here and there and built up a bug system that we're actually now testing and having fun trialing it. And I didn't need to write anything down because, well, it's... I'm creating something new and I, well, I know the problem domain of a ticketing system because unfortunately for the past seven years at my regular your previous day job, I was building a ticketing system. So I know the problem domain way too well. Excellent. So yeah, it depends on what kind it is. Yeah. I think that's, those are good comments for sure. So you don't need to take, you don't need to break everything down into subtasks for just any <coughs> project. You really need to do it based on what type of project it is, what type of client that yes, because sort of some some clients are are really nitpicky and others are not. You know, some clients actually know what they want and actually are very good at explaining it. There's one pro other client I have now through my dad that we're working with. We're basically replacing their CRM system with a custom built software to run their business, and they basically know how their business they know how their business works very well and what they need it to do, what their current system doesn't do very well. So we're getting lots of good feedback into the iterative development of this product as we're building the new system. What do you build? What are you building it on? We're actually building it on Ruby on rails. Cool. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about what's nice about being a freelancer. What do you guys, what did you like best about it, Brandon? And then I'll go to you, Ed, and, and hear what you like about it. You know, um, I, I hated it. I hated every frigging moment of it. You gotta say and something nice about no, it. No, no, I'm not there gonna really say no, no. You here's, were just really happy to be done with it. Uh, yes, I, I really was. Um, because the main thing, the reason that I did freelance work is because I needed money. Right. Right. If if it if it wasn't for me getting uh, uh, my my girlfriend wife pregnant early and and forcing me just to kind of take these shitty jobs, um, and if I didn't have kids, I wouldn't be doing this stuff. 
So right? why not? Is was it a personality mismatch? Were you not able to keep the? I mean, it sounded like you were getting to the point where you're getting lots of good clients and great referrals. Yeah, you know, the money was, should have been rolling in, right? No, and it was. Uh, the money was great, and, but it it I I I just didn't like it. I don't like being told what to do. Um, I have that fundamental problem with my personality. Um, I want to create new stuff. I want to push the envelope. So I'm always in disagreement with the client. Um, I, I overly love them. I mean, to a point where I hate them at the end of it, but they think I'm just like, I'm madly in love with them. So (laughs) I have this, you know, passive aggressive approach with it. I there's, so no, I didn't, I don't like doing freelance. Um, because again, it was a means to an end. I needed money. And now that I've got the money, I'm kind of like, fuck this. I mean, that just isn't worth it. I would rather spend that time building my ideas and testing my ideas and seeing if I can make any of those make more long tail money than just, you know, knocking out a five, ten, twenty thousand dollar deal here or there for, you know, whatever. What, Ed, are there parts about freelance? I mean, you've obviously gone full freelance now. Do you like being a freelancer? I actually do, because the previous job, I was sort of stuck in this rut of working on a ticketing system for way too stinking long. Absolutely. With, so, yeah, with a company who really had no idea what they were doing in running a service desk. And I'm like, because uh, I'm like, you know, the stuff they're reading of how to manage it. I'm like, okay, you guys read that wrong, because I read the same book, and that's not what it says. And so, you know, I have all these ideas of how to do things efficiently. So when I first started there, you know, I'm just there writing stuff, so I'm creating the ways I want. If I think they need to be done, because I'm talking to the people using the software and trying to solve their real problems to make their life better and make them more efficient at doing their job. Mm-hmm. And then when manager says, "Ooh, we can actually do stuff with that," like then they get in the way, and it just went downhill because they don't understand the user base at all. And so they're trying to add things, make me add things in there that then don't get used, and then we waste so much time on them. It's like, just let me design it the way it needs to be designed because I know what it needs to do. Well, how is that and different so, than freelancing, though? Aren't clients telling you what to do? I get to pick my do? clients. So, I get to pick my clients and pick my projects because I didn't start doing it because I needed the money originally. I started because I was bored and wanted hmm. something to do do so i contacted people and said, you know like with the, the game initial game port i was like i gotta find something to do because i'm bored out of my mind and i want some big cool project so i saw this tech demo on mega games of this game called penumbra and i was like hmm so i contacted them and said hey i can do a linux port and a mac port and they said oh cool and so that's how that started and it was just a fun project I wasn't doing it for money originally. They weren't actually going to make a real game out of it. I was doing it for the fun of it. And then they decided to make the game, and then I started getting money out of it. And then now that I'm doing my own stuff, I mean, for the most part, you know, I, I have a couple of people I knew to get me started going. So, you know, I did stuff with you, Jared, right. and everything else to get going. And then all the other stuff picked up. And so I get to pick and choose what and who I work with so I can find the ones that I like that are with people that actually can let me do what I do best, which is identify the client's problem and do the best to solve it so that they can do their job more efficiently and not have to fight with the software. Have you had to dump a client because they're dictating too many bad decisions? Oh, yes. You and I both know that because we've actually had to dump some of those clients together. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or did you forget already? (laughs) I'm trying to get some of the details coming out here. 
but we we can move on actually let's move on to our last uh question here with working on your own projects especially as a freelancer every minute you could be making money especially when you have lots and lots of work to do you've got you know that referral network is really bringing in the work it's hard to decide you know i'm gonna set aside some time and i'm not going to be able to charge anyone for it but i've got to work on my own projects right but how do you find time to do that that is like the lovely quest that I have been on trying to figure out when I can work on my own projects. Cause that was one of the, the one reasons I was like, yeah, if I can work on my own stuff and do my own business, then I can actually cut out time to work on my own projects, my own games and other stuff that I want to work on. And yeah, I'm still waiting for that to some extent, but in other ways I actually have gotten it like the little bug system I wrote for the humble bundle. I didn't get paid for that project. That was a for fun project for me just to do. Now, I didn't not get any money from it, but it's a resume piece is how I'm seeing a lot of those things. It's like, okay, that's something I like doing. I got to learn more about the product, I was, you know, the framework I was using to build it and so that I can use that in you know, paid work to do make it more efficient so I can spend less time doing it and get paid more. But um, And that I can open source it so people can see my code work because that's stuff I can actually release out in the open. So that's what I like about finding some of those open source projects like working on because they're a little resume piece in that regard. But I'm still trying to figure out how to get more dedicated time to work on my own stuff that I want to build for myself to actually sell. And, yeah, I'm still working on that. So, Brandon, you mentioned that being a freelancer wasn't giving you the time to work on your own projects, right? Um, No. Oh, so how did you find time to work on your projects then? Uh, I didn't. (laughs) <laughs> so if I had freelance project again, so my my freelance has always been while I had a full time job. So I oh, will. Okay. So you yeah, were so, never a hundred percent freelance. No, I mean when I didn't have a job after the dot com boom, I was, and you know that that at that point, you know I pretty much didn't do anything of my own. I just built theirs, and now that I've gotten basically, here's the answer to it: is you do it. You if you wanna if you wanna do this as a freelance, you go basically eight to five doing your freelance job. And then when you're done, you work on your own shit and you have to run it militant style. Like you were going to a full-time job because the fact of the matter is, is the sustainability of freelance. I mean, eventually you're going to get old and hopefully you can turn it like all of them do. Like all of these companies who start out as consulting companies and then they turn out to want to build a product and then go live with that. Um, that's what you do is then you work from, you know, after dinner till you go to bed on your own side shit. And just fight the urge to be doing freelance work at night. Absolutely. Yeah. Limit yourself. Again, though, you know, the I, I look at those as yes, I'm getting money from it, but it's taking away time from the product that I could launch that could make me infinite money. Right. Right. So cool. And I think they're me. I'm not trying to get gobs and gobs of money. I'm trying to make sure I get enough money to support the family. So now that I've got these humble bundle ports coming in, which paid very decently, I'm trying to get a nice flow and a nice stuff so I can actually not have to worry so much about making sure I get enough done every month and bill every month to be have enough in the bank. And so I'm hoping, you know, in the next couple of months I'll be able to slow it down a little and actually have time in the evening to work on my own stuff. Currently, all the free time I have has been spent on, well, with the family. You know, right. taking the kids to the zoo or museums and other stuff because, well, I, for me, that's important 
more important than actually working is actually spending time with my four-year-old and my wife. So I make sure I dedicate time for them. Yeah, that's great. Have a good balance is important. Dinner. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's, <laughs> we'll end the topic on dinner. I will, uh, let, let's jump into the Talonopoly links here. So these are some of the links, some good links that have caught my attention over the past two weeks posted up on the site. And the first one is Google Chrome speeds up fancy CSS filter effects. CSS3 has these cool filter effects in them, but they can hose your CPU really, really easily. Uh, they only work in WebKit as well, which I didn't know that until I started looking at this article. This, but what Chrome is doing is Chrome is allowing GPU acceleration for mm -hmm. the filter effects. So now you can just go hog wild with them. You can do some really cool filter effects in conjunction with CSS uh, animation. And normally that would just completely, that would get the fan whirling on any laptop <laughs> really quickly. But with the GPU acceleration, you can easily do this. That's I wouldn't recommend cool. doing it in anything but a play site because it's not widely supported and you will hose people's computers if they don't run this new version of Chrome. And this isn't even out in regular Chrome. This is in Chromium, by the way. And it's probably <laughs> going to be at least a couple more, a few more versions of Chrome until it makes it into the into it. So it's a, good, it's a good peek into the future, though. It is. It's nice to know it's coming. It's nice to know that CSS three with every release of uh, Firefox and Chrome, they 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 implement more and more of it, and you can play with a lot more. The neat thing here too is that as devices are building in, they're starting to build in uh, the ability to get a photo from the actual. Uh, mobile device right in the browser so you'll be able to pick photos that you've taken you could create an instagram style app very easily using css3 filters have all kinds of cool filters applied to the image and then be able to upload it without having to do a native app so that's that's kind of the promise that's coming here boing boring well, I said boing. Oh, I thought you said boring. You're like, oh, I'm bored with that. Whatever. Bored. Move on. <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm a little keen on all the the op the WebGL adoption that's been going on too. Because that's that's really interesting. Using that to really get some real power in the browser. And it's some amazing. of the actual demos that Firefox has on their little you know website is are very quite interesting, especially some of the augmented reality ones. Where you can like upload a picture or something, or have like a video playing, and there's like certain squares in the video, and then they'll use to JavaScript just scanning each frame of the video to find that, and then render a bouncing ball that follows this piece of paper. And it's just like that's just so freaking sweet. That is really cool. I was uh, I was at a, the local JavaScript meetup last night, and the some of the guys they were talking about how Chrome. They were hanging out with some Chrome developers at uh, the JS conf and they were talking about the Chrome developers were talking about how they're going to try to use GPU acceleration for the JavaScript V8 engine and do things like, you know, immutable arrays and whatnot. Large arrays could be thrown onto the GPU and process much faster. So I think that's kind of exciting to see. You've got these really powerful GPUs on all these mobile devices. Let's start using them for a lot more than just you know, the WebGL stuff is really cool, but let's see what else we can use them for. Which I don't know how efficient that was. Because I was, a while ago, I was, well, as I'm compressing these game installers, which are, you know, a gig plus size, or, you know, I'm like, it takes a while to compress them. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if anybody's written some GPU accelerated compression algorithms. And I did some slight research on it and found that 
basically, yeah, there's a couple people who toyed with it, but it didn't really work because the way a GPU works is different than the way your GPU works. And it, basically, it really works efficiently if you have lots of parallelization, yes. which most compression algorithms don't. And doing some storing a JavaScript array and other stuff, it's like there's not a lot of parallelism on there, so it's not really going to boost you any performance on it. Right. Yeah, you so can only use like, it in very certain situations to optimize. Yeah. And, and that is what they talked about some, too. That's what they said was the reason it, that V8's not currently using GPUs, but that they could see using it for certain things in the future. All right, our next uh, article is Pockets Tips for Aspiring Android Developers. It's not really terrifying. Did you guys see some of the posts that went up over the last few weeks about they would show an image of all these Android devices sprawled across a desk and say, <laughs> yeah. here's all of our test devices that we test on. And it, you know, it started to scare a lot of non-Android devs. Like, wow, you have to have 40 devices to properly test your Android app. And I think that painted an unrealistic picture of just how, you know, just how you do Android testing. So this guy who is one of the co-founders, or I think he's a co-founder. I know his brother, he says, did uh, found Pocket. But Pocket is the rebranded Read It Later. Love it. Yeah. So it's like Instapaper. It's just a you know a competitor to Instapaper. And they have an Android app. They've had one for quite a while, it looks like, since at least uh, 2010. And he said it's not that bad. You know, you don't have to have 40 devices. He said when they first started developing for Android, there were already four versions of Android that were popular. And Eclair was 50% of the uh, installed on 50% of them. So he went out and bought an Eclair-based Android device. And then his brother bought, uh, uh, purposely bought a non-Eclair one. I think it was Froyo, just so that he could test on that. And they said that's all they had in the, in the beginning when they were doing you know, that first version or two. And they just slowly grew that over time. As they brought more developers in, those developers had their own devices. They did go out and buy a handful of other ones. I think they're up to 12 now. It's really a manageable number. And he said the emulators have gotten a lot better. They're actually use like usable now. When he first started, they were so slow, you just couldn't use them. And they do tablet development, so they have a couple of tablets. And he said that's generally enough for them. He said there's still problems they have uh, that people will email them about. Their beta testers will, will tell them that it's not working on a certain device. But they have 50 beta testers, so across those 50, they have a pretty diverse set of hardware. That's still That's still a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It's it's definitely more work than iOS. Yeah, I mean, and that's not going away. So it's right. just it's it's just the, the cost of playing in that marketplace. And if you're not thinking about playing in that marketplace, you're fucking stupid. Yeah, absolutely. And Instapaper is finally on Android, but Instapaper not being on Android for so long definitely left left the window open for Read yeah. Later slash Pocket and other yeah, ones. Totally. No, I'm uh, I'm I think I'm buying the One X. You're buying the what? The One X, the HTC One X. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's a it's a sick ass phone. I mean, it's 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 awesome. Very yeah. cool. We'll have to hear about some of your experience once you've uh, gotten and played with it a bit. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. and then let's see here. He also talks about uh, how this new theme that is out for Android now, the Hollow theme really standardized along with the style guidelines that they finally released for Android, really gave a clear understanding to all the developers what Android apps should generally look like. 
which removed a ton of the questions that they and other Android devs had. Now it's much more of, oh, okay, that it, it's more spelled out. So he said that's helped a ton. But yeah, not as bad as the picture that was being painted a few weeks ago. Those pictures were funny and they got tons of hits, but uh, it's probably the extreme case to have to test on 40 plus devices. Yeah, it was like 700 or some crazy yeah, yeah. ass number like that. Yep. All right, next article is beta bait. Find beta users and testers. It's it's not a site that's real easy on the eyes, but I kind of <laughs> like how minimum. This looks like it was thrown together pretty quick, but kudos yeah. to them for getting the level of traffic they've gotten to it. It shows here they've been featured on TechCrunch, The Next Web, Mashable, you know, all the top tech blogs. They What it is is you go on here and you can list your startup. And you can be a startup or you can be an adopter. So if you're just somebody who's interested in, in whatever the latest startup is, you want to go find some cool apps and become a beta tester and give them some really early feedback – this place is awesome for that. You'll be able to surf this all day and find tons of great little apps. And if you're a startup looking for some of those early beta testers, which can be critical, I mean, I think that getting 20 or even, you know, if you can get 50 early beta testers, that should be your goal when you first launch. Don't try to get hundreds of users right out of the gate. Just try to get some really vocal beta testers that can help you guide that product towards something that will then naturally be able to spread and attract hundreds of users or thousands of users. <laughs> this thing is ugly. It is very ugly. But, like, look at some of these things have been voted up 34 times, 30 yeah. times. It's a 2012 Craigslist-looking thing. <laughs> <laughs> it has sponsors over here, so if you want to get your app featured, it's 50 bucks to become a sponsor. You get some prime placement on the right side of the front page. So, yeah, if you uh, if you want some publicity however small it is, but some publicity for your app or you're looking for cool stuff to try out, check that out. Next link. Why do some programming languages live and others die? What? This is kind of interesting. What did you think of some of the stuff mentioned in here, Ed? Like, why, why is C and C++ still around? Why has that language not been replaced yet? Is I Ed still there? I might have lost him. I think I am. Can you hear me? Hi, yes, Ed. Can, can you hear, hear us? Uh-oh. Oh. Sounds like Ed. I'll tell you what I think. All right. <laughs> because it's fast. This shit's fast. That's that's all I've got. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I was waiting for something more profound, but I'll no, take no, it. No, that's it. it. No, C++ is fast, right? That's all I that's all I ever see is how fucking crazy fast it is. And and it's like if you want to go if you want to make stuff crazy fast, you go to C++. And and it's just the longevity, it's all over the damn internet and it will not die. Right. Yeah, they talking here about how Google has is, is come out with two languages recently, Go and Dart. Go is trying to replace languages like C and C++. Dart is aimed directly at JavaScript, yeah. wanting to be a better version of that. And the jury's still very much out on those languages. It's going to be, even though it's Google introducing those, it's going to be very tough for those to become widely adopted. And so what these, these researchers at Princeton and Cal Berkeley... They are looking into, and they say they're doing this on the side as kind of a side project, but they're looking into what is it that makes certain programming languages popular and why do others just never take off or why do they die out? 
And he said, oftentimes, these, what these researchers are finding is some of these other languages are coming out, and they're very academic in nature. They're, mm-hmm. they're trying to do really cool things to lang- for language geeks. You know, the language geeks get it, and they're like, whoa, you did that? Like, man, you can, like, you know, I don't even have a stupid example <laughs> right now. But something nice like you Good can one. combine like an that. array and a string and a nut. Like, who knows what? But, you know, it's like that's not useful. There's a reason why... Other languages haven't implemented that. It's because programmers weren't asking for it. That's yeah. really cool that your language can do that, but is it really practical? And they're saying that the languages they find that are attacking the really practical problems that developers are having and doing that in a better, faster, easier way to program, those are the ones that can start to take root. You know, so my whole thing, I think what happens with these ones, it's the ones who have the best documentation coming out of the gate. That's true. That, that seems to be the biggest – as everything that I've seen is the ones that I can go into not knowing anything and immediately see examples and immediately see, oh, this guy has this. I can search Google and boom, there's results about how people solve these problems that those are the ones where you can then start getting that feedback of, look, I'm actually doing shit in this language and I'm getting that feedback and I'm actually doing some interesting things and that pulls me back in and I keep doing more and more and more. That seems to be the thing that really – like the, they talk about action script in here and Right, and I did a lot of action script, um, and I loved it. But the fact of the matter was, it was really hard to find anything outside of the macro. Uh, mac, it was Macromedia site at the time, maybe, right? Um, yeah. uh, or the Adobe site outside of those to get any kind of opinions on how to handle things or do whatever. Um, and same thing goes with Cold Fusion. Um, that that it, yeah. So that's my take on it, anyway. Whatever. Yes, interestingly, they bring that up too, and Scala is starting to take off now. And they were mm-hmm. saying when Scala first uh, debuted, it had zero documentation. It was so poorly documented. But people were still adopting it even back then. And it's, it's, it's grown so much over time. So that did kind of buck the trend of poor, you know, poor mm-hmm. documentation should kill you. And it didn't kill that. But for other languages, it will. So it's really interesting. You know, I, I bet this I don't be think they're going to be able to come up with a – I guarantee you they're not going to be able to come up with a silver bullet. There's no. just too many factors that go into a launch of a product, and that's really what uh, when you launch your language you're really doing. You're launching a product that you hope people are going to adopt and start leveraging and customizing and all that. Right. <sighs> Absolutely. I think we, do, we have, do we have Ed back now? I – We do. Yeah, back. Welcome me? back. Oh, cool. <laughs> Nice. I, I think one of the factors that why C and C++ are still around is portability. And the fact that y- you can use C with any other language, because any other language will link to a library that's made with C. And that's one of the things that's gotten C where it is, is because it is portable. It runs on every stinking platform out there. So if you want to write something that's really going to run almost anywhere, you can write it in C, and there's already standards around a lot of stuff with that thing to make things portable. So and that's one of the reasons why it's still there. And then, of course, it's, it's the closest level you know, down there towards assembly, so you can still get lots of performance without a lot of overhead. Now, the other one that's been catching on a lot lately due to the iPhone and the iPad is Objective-C has really been picking up a lot of steam over recent years because of that. Before, it was like a who knows what that language is. Right. But now it's actually pretty high up there because of Sheer force of will from Mr. Steve Jobs of choosing, well, this is what we're going to write everything in now. We're not going to use C, right, straight C or C++ anymore. And they just I, buy- I, don't, I don't think the, there's longevity in that model uh, with Objective-C. Um, 
because it it's, it's obviously tied directly to the company, right? Objective-C is not running on any other devices. Is that true? Actually, Objective-C is a standard language. It's is actually it? out there. It, it, yes. Apple I had just no idea. Chose, well, actually, Steve Jobs chose it when he built Next. And because of the syntax, it was like small talking, like that object model over C++, because the object model is a heck of a lot simpler and easier to work with than C++ as an object model. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So so there are and, other people doing Objective-C development that's not running on an yeah. I, uh, Apple or iOS. Yes, because you can. I can run Objective-C stuff from Linux box and Windows, because I mean, the GCC compiler has Objective-C support and has always had it. Heck, well, it there you go. Hell, I learned reason. something. But it hasn't been popular at all until iOS, really. No, because most time people just said, well, you know, we'll just use, you know, because if you're running on Windows, most time you're not using GCC to compile your code. You're using, you know, Microsoft's compiler, which doesn't support that. Now, nowadays we have LLVM, which has been picking up a lot of popularity as a compiler and starting to actually supplant, replace GCC in a lot of platforms. And that one has a lot better support for all the new GCC support that GC, that new Objective C support that GCC currently doesn't have because mm. Apple has been pushing LLVM in their platforms as the compiler of choice. So as that's been going on, that's going to improve portability elsewhere. And actually, I found someone site that actually has a implementation of the Objective C compiler using GCC and LLVM and stuff, and a lot of the actual. AppKit framework from Mac OS X, allowing you to write a single Mac OS X application and then compile it to Linux and to Windows. Very cool. It's like, that's really odd and strange, but I guess if you really want to do that, you could. Because really, the APIs that Apple has created are very nice and well-structured and very well-documented compared to most others I've played with, Right. which is an oddity for most of that. And the fact that Apple does spend a lot of time on their human interface guidelines to make it very easy to, you know, know exactly where to put the stinking buttons to make it look consistent and nice. Right. I agree with you, Brandon, though. This research is going to be very difficult for them to draw conclusions that are general conclusions. They're probably going to learn a whole lot about the history of the different languages, but I'm not sure what they're going to do with all that. All right. Let's move to the I next. I see it every couple of years, people doing research on language histories and whatnot. It's... Yep. All right, let's move to the next article. The antivirus era is over. Basically, the argument in this, uh, they use the flame virus, the recently spreading flame virus that supposedly the uh, U.S. government uh, put together, and it, it got out into the wild, and it's been spreading like crazy, and spread for quite a while without other people knowing. And they're saying that this the old traditional method of antivirus software basically having a list of signatures in by which it identifies the malware and the viruses on your system is a reactive approach that is destined to fail and can't scale and what they want what they say should be the future is software that is able to detect viruses it's never known about beforehand that has not been pre-programmed to specifically identify but that it is able to look at the certain behavior patterns of the software running on your computer and say, hey, you look like you're a virus. You're doing some nasty stuff or at least trying to do some nasty stuff. I don't know who you are, but I'm going to now treat you as a virus. And there's quite a few startups 
that uh, they mentioned a few of them in here, some startups that are building some of the software to try to do this and take antivirus down a whole new direction. Do you guys run antivirus software? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I, I don't, don't run, run it. Windows. I mean, technically, if you think about it, what they're really saying there is stuff that is actually being built into Mac OS X and has been built into Linux for quite a while. I mean, Mac OS X, you know, Apple's going the approach with this whole sandboxing mess mm -hmm. and try to say so you, in the future you could lock down your system and only run signed approved applications and nothing else and everything runs in isolated sandbox and can't touch anything else. That's one approach to prevent the problem from happening in the first place. Which is also way, basically all the mobile devices work in a sandboxed method, right? Base pretty much, yes. Now, the way Linux handles it is similar kind of thing except well you're not trusting who gets what by some third party company you do it by a profile you can define yourself or what comes with the distribution which is the the se linux system that comes on most modern linux systems i know fedora and you know red hat is really pushing se linux through all their distributions and i think several others are actually including in theirs right that provides a nice especially more it's targeted for servers, but you can still use it for desktops as well to isolate things out. So you can have a rogue program on your system, and it won't be able to do anything. So yeah. something hacks your web server, well, it can't do anything because that web server is locked down so tight that it can only do exactly what it's supposed to do, which is read web content and send it over the Internet, and that's it. And that's actually, I like all my servers, I run with full SE Linux enforcing because it saves me from things that when certain, you know, rogue PHP applications cause, you know, have a security hole and it doesn't affect my, me at all because, well, it can't do anything. Like good old PHP, PHP BB, right? Yeah, I don't run that on there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and of course, the, the SC Linux came out of the NSA. So yes. they're the ones that originally created the SC Linux stuff and contributed to the Linux kernel because, well, they guess they wanted their stuff locked down for some reason. I don't know why, but... <laughs> yeah, well, they're also the ones supposedly writing things like Flame and Stuxnet or helping to write them. <laughs> so, yeah. You stand on both sides of the fence and no one will know what you're doing, right? <laughs> So yeah, antivirus software is pretty much dead as it currently is. I think that's that's pretty true. But it's interesting to see because there's certainly a market out there that will always want to run some kind of actively monitoring software. And at least if you're going to do it, it probably is better to run something that can identify things that are outside of what's been pre-programmed to identify. That's going to be a better approach down the road. And it, yeah. it's kind of funny that the antivirus model that we have now it's the same model we've had for the last 20 years, and it's unchanged. Pretty much, yeah. Well, it was like, I know a couple of years ago, back when multi-core systems were first coming to the desktop market heavily, there was a PC World, I believe, article I was reading where they were trying to say, now that we have multi-core systems on the desktop, then we don't have to worry about not running antivirus. We can run it all the time, and we can <laughs> run the malware software because we can dedicate an entire core just to that. I'm like... That has got to be the stupidest reason to get a multi-core system. <laughs> I love it. All right, let's move on to our next article, benchmark.js. Nice little tool that you can use to – this will work on nearly all JavaScript platforms, it says. And you can use this to get high-resolution timings of some of your JavaScript functions. Uh, figure out exactly how fast some of your custom JavaScript is running with this nice little timer. 
there's not much more to it than that. But if you're wondering, if you want to quickly show how fast something's run on screen or just probably a good idea to go in and benchmark your stuff every once in a while. If you have a very JavaScript heavy uh, front end, you might want to look at this. Is this for client side or server side? You it could mean, be like, both using it within Node. Oh yeah, because it looks like there's stuff about Node. Yes, they have a they have a, a Node package, an NPM for it, and it would be fantastic I, inside Node. But personally, for me, doing benchmarking and, and that stuff, I just use the profile that's built into Firebug. I've used that on a number of occasions to profile different things, figure out what's slowing down, and to narrow down. Oh, this function is the one that's screwed up. Right. Yeah, they do say inside Chrome as well, you could just do the enable benchmarking flag. That's a command line yeah, yeah. switch you can turn on to do that. But yeah, definitely inside a Node project, this would be pretty sweet. All right, our last uh, our last link here is Pictos 4 has been released. This is something we've talked about a few times, and I know, Brandon, you're a big fan of Pictos, right? Yeah, I am. I I think the, what I'm I'm <laughs> the, the, the I never liked the dude, um, like, and I can't remember what his name is. Drew uh, Wilson. Yeah, Drew. He's a. I mean, the, the, he's in a beautiful, beautiful. His stuff is amazing, but he is the most shameless businessman <laughs> at the same time, and just shrewd, you know. But I respect the fuck out of the guy. And and now he's got this, you know, he's got the 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 pack that you can buy, but he's also running the online version, the server version that you can go and basically build your own sets and have like all these beautiful icons and set your key commands and pay, you know, X dollars a month. Right. I mean, the guy is a sick, sick, brilliant business person um, and his designs are just awesome. I mean, his icons are impeccable. Yeah, it's 19 bucks for the vector pack. Uh, it's got well over a hundred in here. It looks like a hundred icons, some really cool stuff. And then he also released an outlines set of icons, which is basically the, it looks like the Pictos ones from one of the Pictos libraries just done as, as an outline. So they're hollow. Yeah. Which is brilliant to like, just, Oh, I'll, I'll make two versions. I love <laughs> <Exactly>. that. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just do invert. Yeah. And next thing you know, and that's a whole different icon set. Love yeah. it. Again, he is. He's shrewd. Um, he's not helpful when it comes to, hey, why isn't this working on Android? Um, but now it does. Uh, but my God, he he's genius. Genius. So jealous of this bastard. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, speaking, well, we, what's up, Ed? Uh, so speaking of icons, uh, did you, any of you see the latest redesign to GitHub? There was, I was reading yes. the GitHub blog. They have opticons. The Opticons things. The way they implemented those was so sweet. Instead of actually creating, you know, vector images like, you know, doing SVGs or something to make it scalable or doing lots of paint, they did, okay, here's a fallback paint for browsers that don't support web fonts, but otherwise they put it into a font and used the font rendering engine to make it scalable. That's exactly what Pictos is, too. Really? I thought that was just impressive. That's why Pictos is so cool. Pictos is one of the original font icon sets. Yep. Ah, yeah. I used it for uh, for the company I'm at now, and it was great. I mean, you have all these great icons, and it's literally you throw a class on there, and you put you know star the the, the star character, and it turns into a beautiful star. Yep. <laughs> it's like this is awesome. It is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. And I can have it be 56 pixels, or I can have it be 10, and it all looks good. And Twitter Bootstrap does its icons in the same way. Yeah, 
I, I, actually, don't, I don't know which cool. one they use, but they have a similar set. So now that web fonts are finally coming into their own nowadays and browsers are actually really supporting them, it just it opens up whole new worlds oh, to yeah. actually make things nice without having to use stinking images. When we we're, don't we we're we're quickly becoming we're quickly coming onto the era where you'll be able to build beautiful websites without Photoshop. And, I love it. I would say and, we're yeah, pretty much hey. there. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, no, I, I'll know I'm there when my designer friends are fully converted. They're right just now, developers, end, uh... yeah, developer guys, and and a lot of the front end developers, they they're getting there. But when designers, so you know, with Patrick, uh, he he is now almost exclusively does all of his stuff with CSS. <laughs> I mean, to a point where he takes screenshots and sends it to clients, right? And they're like, "Yeah, that looks great." And he's like, "Perfect, boom, it's done. It's done." <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah. that is the way to do it. Well, I think I, I think we're definitely. Vision... The vision of, of CSS has finally come into its own of what, you know, the W3C originally intended for this thing. Yep. It's definitely nice and powerful. Because I know uh, the bug system for the Humble Bundle, I mean, it looks nice. It has all these nice gradients and everything else on it. And I did not use a single stinking picture <laughs> image. It's all CSS. It's brilliant. Well, gentlemen, oh, yeah, we have come to the end of this episode, sadly. But thank yes. you for being on the podcast, Ed. Always appreciate the conversation. Always learn something. It's great. Brandon, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast, I guess. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Thanks for being on, Brandon. And thanks for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next episode. Keep on hacking. <laughs>